Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother pray for us now at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady's seat of wisdom, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, the grand finale. So uh, I want to thank you guys for being here today because we could have gotten out of this, but um, this is for your own preparation because uh, in short order, you're going to be out there as I've told you, with an overworked pastor who's going to say, oh, i got five weddings. Can you take care of them for me? So um, to the extent that you can, it's important to try to hit the ground running uh, once, you're, uh, uh, once you're assigned to the parish. So, um, uh, you know, we, I give you some stuff here. You've got to um, continue studying on your own. Make sure you get this in your head, you know, and, and just think about, you know, what you're headed towards. That the day after you're ordained, someone's going to come up to you and say, you know, I want you to do my wedding. Go. All right. Be ready to do it. That's uh, that's uh, what the church is asking of you. Okay. So um, so I'm going to give you the, the references, the canons to study and so forth. I'll go over with uh, with you some of the uh, procedures and so forth. But then you've got to get it all kind of settled in your head so you know what to do once you get into the parish. And between now and when you're ordained, as I mentioned, uh, you're going to be ordained this spring, right? God willing, right? June, Edward. God willing. Yeah, in June, yeah. So yeah, uh, maybe right. summer, whatever God willing. it is. Yeah. Um, between now and then, it's really important to, uh, you know, meet with your pastor or someone in the parish and have them show you the, the everything, you know? Have them show you. We'll go over this as much as we can um, towards the end of this uh, this class, but have them show you the PMI, the... the um, the, the, the marriage record, um, and the other records, if you haven't seen them, baptismal uh, records and, and all these other records, so you know kind of the lay, the lay of the land. And if you have a really good pastor, it's really helpful, he'll, um, he'll kind of go over things with you. You know, as, as I think I mentioned last time, there's, a, um, uh, there's a, an envelope that I, I, I've seen in most parishes that I've been in now. Uh, a big manila envelope. It has on one side a checklist, basically, you know, uh, or whatever, you know, the name and address and so forth of the, the parties, you know, check, you know, um, uh, <coughs> pre-cana, check, you know, PMI, check, you know, um, uh, baptismal certificate, check, you know, all these things that you need to make sure you've done, you know, so, uh, and there are other things like that around. Uh, I would go also to um, the website for your diocese, and see what uh, the Family Life Office has, or the, it might be the Family Life Office, it might be the Chancery Office, it might be the Tribunal. Um, some dioceses have an Office of Canonical Affairs, and see everything they have related to, uh, to weddings, to, to, uh, to matrimony. And so they might have on there, they might or might not have uh, forms for dispensations and things like that. Um, those forms also you should be able to find in your, in your rectory, you know. So again, ask the pastor to go over those things with you. Um, you know, the various forms for dispensations of various kinds. Uh, there is a, <coughs> a petition to allow a declaration of nullity for lack of, uh, of uh, form in 1108. Um, uh, there, there are other things in there as well. So uh, you should ask the pastor just to show you everything so you can be ready. Okay? 
So, um, you know, we can't test you and grade you on everything, but um, but the, the ultimate test is going to be in a few months when, when you're ordained and you start doing weddings. Right? Um, <clears throat> so just to go uh, quickly through the, um, the remaining um, canons um, and then some processes that we have to focus on. Um, so we were on canon 11... Um, 34, basically, we started there. Um, and we spoke about the, the marriage bond, right? Uh, and, and this comes from what our Lord himself said. Uh, you know, what God has joined together, uh, you know, let no man put asunder. In the book of Genesis, uh, and our Lord repeats it uh, in the Gospels. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. God has joined together. There is a conjunction, as it were. There is a uniting, and we call that the, the marriage bond. And that bond has its own life, as it were. It has its own existence. In our day and age, uh, probably a majority of people don't believe there is such a thing as a marriage bond. And their version of... Um, of the marriage bond would be that the couple make a commitment to each other and as long as both of them agree continue to agree to this commitment then they they have they have a marriage but once one of them decides i've had it i'm out of here then the marriage is over and that's the that's the way a lot of people think these days including uh, some catholics including some priests i know uh, including including one one famous canon lawyer that i know uh, who thinks that? You know, who, uh, who once gave a talk at a canon law convention, and he said uh, his uh, the thesis of his talk was that the marriage dies when love dies. You know, it sounded like a soap opera, you know? but um, that's not canon law. It was t it's terrible what he what he was saying. But remember what our Lord said. Okay, so marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent. That's one of the basic teachings of the Catholic faith. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, um, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, you know, and, and our Lord says, what is adultery? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Okay, this is divine law we're talking about, right? So it's important to remember this. So, um, as, as I think I mentioned before, you can't equate, say, the permanent bond of marriage with the um, the law against um, the law against uh, disparity of cults, right? Disparity of cults, the um, Catholic marrying an unbaptized person, that is an ecclesiastical law. It's present in the law for a, a very good reason. It could be changed. It, it shouldn't be changed, but it could be changed. Um, that that's a man-made law, very important man-made law, as opposed to prior bond. Prior bond is from God. It's divine law. So you can't dispense from a prior bond, you know? Um, so it's important to remember the difference between, as we've said throughout the course, the difference between um, divine law and human law. Right? And, and don't, don't, don't go where angels fear to tread and say, oh, we'll just dispense you from your prior bond. No, it's divine law, okay? So there's this thing called a bond. Right. Um, when I was first appointed to the tribunal, I had a couple of different hats I was uh, I was wearing, and one of the hats was defender of the bond. Right. We'll get in a little bit into the processes at the tribunal uh, later on this evening, but um, defender of the bond is an important um, 
office in the tribunal. You have judges and you have advocates and you have all these people. Defender of the bond, just as the name implies, is the one who is called to defend the bond. He's called to argue against the so-called annulment. He's called to argue against an affirmative decision. He's called to argue against what the petitioner wants, which is a declaration that the marriage is invalid. He's called to point out why this marriage is valid, why the bond exists. So he defends the bond. So remember the marriage bond. Once the couple commit themselves to marriage, once they have given consent to marriage, then that bond exists. And even if they get bored with one another and even if they decide they're tired of the marriage, the bond is still there and they can't break it. And you can't either. Okay, Canada 1135, each spouse has equal duty and right to those things that belong to the partnership of conjugal life. Okay, we don't have time to elucidate that. Canada 1136, parents have the most grave duty and the primary right. The primary right to take care as best they can for the physical, social, cultural, moral, and religious education of their offspring. I wish I had time to get into this. But you know what's going on where you have more and more you have government saying that the parents do not have a basic right. The government has the right. And the parents have to go along with what the government says and so forth. No, the parents have the most grave duty and the primary right to take care as best they can for the physical, social, cultural, moral, and religious education of their offspring, not the state. Canada 1137, remember Canada 1137, because people will ask you this all the time whenever the question of a marriage nullity or so-called annulments comes up. Canada 1137, the children conceived or born of a valid or putative marriage are legitimate. I can't tell you how many times I've had a case at the tribunal where the petitioner introduces the case and then the respondent, the other party, so the petitioner says the ex-wife say, and the respondent is the ex-husband. I can't tell you how many times the respondent has objected to the whole thing saying, I don't want an annulment, which is a misnomer as we know, I don't want an annulment because it will make our children illegitimate. Okay, no, Canada 1137 says just the opposite. So it says that children are legitimate if they are conceived or born of a valid marriage or a putative marriage. What is a putative marriage? It's a marriage, it's a marriage that, it's an invalid marriage that's thought to be valid. Right, okay, so that's any marriage really that has gone through a tribunal and found to be invalid. So the time they got married, the couple thought their marriage was valid. Five years later, one of them, they're divorced and one of them brings a case to the tribunal. The tribunal rules in the affirmative that the marriage was invalid. So it's a putative marriage. It was thought to be valid, but it's discovered later that it's not. Remember that was a canon much earlier on that we dealt with. Remember that because people will object to that. Object to the marriage annulment process simply on that basis and it's simply false. We don't have time to get into this in detail. If this comes up, I would consult this next thing. I would consult the chancery or the tribunal 
Um, can 1138, who's the father of the child? Sometimes it's difficult to determine that. The father is he whom a lawful marriage indicates unless clear evidence proves the contrary. So most of the time, uh, it's pretty obvious. You know? um, number two, children born at least 180 days after the day when the marriage was celebrated or within 300 days from the day of the dissolution of con conjugal life are presumed to be legitimate. Right? So, um, so if a child is born six months after the wedding, the child is presumed to be um, legitimate, or if the child is is um, is born 10 months after the dissolution of the wedding, the child is presumed to be legitimate. Okay, uh, uh, at this point I wouldn't worry about this too much, but just know that this comes up. Uh, and I mentioned this before, uh, it's a great practice when, when a, uh, somebody comes to you for uh, a baptism, to get uh, the the uh, the birth certificate of the child, I think I mentioned this before. Can get the birth certificate of the child and check out who it says is the father and the mother, and those are the names you're going to put in the baptismal certificate and in, in in the baptismal record. Otherwise, otherwise you can end up. I don't know if you end up in jail, but you end up uh, uh, committing a crime. Otherwise, you are falsifying documents, right? So, and people do this sometimes. They'll get a baptismal certificate that says so-and-so is the father. Aha, so-and-so is not the father. The birth certificate says clearly otherwise. But the church says he's the father. So paternity suit starts and all the rest. Okay? So you can find yourself unwittingly being dragged into something like that. So be very careful you know who the father is and who the mother is, obviously. All right? And get, get a copy of that birth certificate. <clears throat> Make sure it's a genuine copy. Uh, best if you look at the actual original and return it to them. Make sure it's clear to you legally who the parents are. Okay. Um, okay. Um, can 1139, don't worry about this. Illegitimate children can be legitimated later, uh, but don't worry about that. Um, uh, okay. Let's get on to... Um, Chapter nine, the separation of the spouses. And this is, uh, we're coming near the end here. Um, and um, we, um, but it's, this is a difficult part of it, unfortunately. So, so you need to pay attention. Um, separation of the spouses. So we have been discussing uh, all along uh, that marriage bond, just mentioned what the marriage bond is, and human beings cannot break it, right? It's, it's, it's dissolved usually by death. However, the Bible itself, the New Testament itself, contains an exception. And so um, because of that, and because of uh, deeper understanding of the nature of marriage itself, we have a couple of situations in which the marriage bond can actually be dissolved by the church. It is authority given to the church by the Lord. Okay, these are, these don't frequently happen, but they do happen. So canon 1141, number one, here's the basic principle. A marriage that is rotten and sumatum can be dissolved by no human power, by no cause except death. What is a marriage that is rotten and sumatum? Marriage that was consummated. What is rotten? What is a rotten marriage? Ratified. Right, but what does that mean? I mean, what does ratified mean? 
What does rotten mean in the canonical sense? Consent was exchanged. Pardon? Exchange consent, right? Sure, yeah, it's a valid marriage, but there's more to it than that. A rotten marriage. It's very important to know this. Rotten is a valid marriage between the baptized. Between the baptized. We're not talking about a non-sacramental marriage. A rotten marriage is a sacramental marriage, in effect. Rotten means basically sacramental. The couple have given consent, but they are both baptized, so it is a sacrament. It is rotten. So remember that. This was an earlier canon. Rotten et consummatum. And what does consummatum mean? And specifically now, I don't get into too much graphic detail. This is a family-friendly seminary, but what does it mean canonically to be consummated? Engaged in a human act which is capable of producing children. You got it. Okay. All right. They have performed the sexual act in a human manner. Humano modo. Remember I mentioned that? Humano modo. Senior Michael Curran wrote his whole dissertation on what humano modo means. But it means having sex in, shall we say, the way designed by the creator in such a fashion that it is open to the possibility of producing offspring. So consummation, that's what consummation means. Sexual activity, humano modo. So rotten et consummatum. A sacramental marriage that has been consummated. That's it, folks. They're stuck with each other. No one can break this up. Pope can't break it up. No one can break it up. If it's rotten, sacramental, et consummatum. But if it's not rotten, if it's not both rotten and consummatum, it can possibly be broken up. Believe it or not, it can possibly be dissolved. And the basic idea is if you have either one of those missing, it could be dissolved. So the first one that we're going to look at is the case where it's non consummatum. It's not consummated. So say it's sacramental. They're both baptized and it's a valid marriage. But they never had sexual intercourse in humano modo, in the human way. That could possibly be dissolved. We're going to see how this happens. That could possibly be dissolved because it was not consummated. That's one possibility. The other possibility is if it's not rotten, if it's not a sacramental marriage. So if it's a marriage between two unbaptized persons or a marriage between a baptized person and an unbaptized person, that could possibly be dissolved. We're going to see how this happens and why this happens. So first of all, and when something like this comes up, either one of these comes up, you get in touch with your friendly local tribunal because they're the ones who are going to handle it. So first of all, Ken 1142, for a just cause, who does this? Roman pontiff. Not any of us, not even the tribunal prepares the case, but it's the Roman pontiff. For a just cause, the Roman pontiff can dissolve a non-consummated marriage 
between baptized persons or between a baptized party and a non-baptized party at the request of both parties or of one of them, even if the other party is unwilling, believe it or not. So, and that's really all you need to know about this. Know the possibility that this can happen. And these are very tragic cases, right? Obviously, you know, a couple is married and it doesn't happen. Sometimes it's because of impotence and we discussed that, right? But they might not have consummated it for other reasons. They might have used artificial birth control every single time that they had sexual intercourse, right? Or they might just not have been interested in having sexual activity at all, whatever the reason. They might be capable of it, but they didn't want to do it, you know, for maybe a psychological reason, whatever it might be, you know. But if it's not consummated, the marriage can possibly be dissolved on that basis, on that basis. But it's by the Roman pontiff. So if a couple comes to you or a couple comes to you or one of the spouses from a former marriage comes to you and says, you know, we broke up, we never had sex or we never had sex in a normal way, whatever it might be. You could say, well, you know, I'm not promising you anything, but sometimes, you know, and then send them to the tribunal, okay? And then there's a whole process where they have, how do you prove you haven't had sexual intercourse, you know? Witnesses. Well, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, well, I was about to refer to the good doctor, but witnesses, you laugh. Yes, witnesses up to a point because they could be talking about it all the time, you know, to some close friends, you know, it's not happening, you know. In the past, doctors sometimes were involved. Certainly in the case of, and this is not the same thing as dissolving the bond, but in the case where someone is actually impotent, right? So you get doctors involved with that. But we're not talking about impotence here necessarily. We're just talking about the fact they didn't have sexual intercourse. It used to be that you would have a doctor examine a woman to see if she was still a virgin, you know? That, you know, that's impractical now because, you know, how many women are virgins these days? Yeah, that doesn't work either. I mean, they can, you know, that was, you know, the falsehood of, you know, was the hymen broken? And that could be broken with a tampon. So, you know, that's another story. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's hard to prove. But cases like this sometimes receive an affirmative decision from the Vatican, you know? So just to know that that is a possibility sometimes. Don't ever promise people anything because that's why we have tribunals. That's why we have the Vatican. That's why we have the Pope. They have to weigh in on this, you know? But just so you're aware that that might be a reason why something can be done about this former marriage. Hey, Father, what happened? Two questions, sorry. First one, I just want to make sure that I understand what you were saying about the issue of using artificial contraception. So if a couple is married, legitimate marriage, legal marriage, valid marriage, and they use birth control every single time they had intercourse. Not consummated. You're saying that that could be a grounds for the marriage not being consummated under ecclesial law? That's exactly correct, yeah. This is evolving jurisprudence. 
from the, the sacred Roman Rota. You know, this was evolving when I was on the tribunal, that more and more um, uh, this question came up because uh, what is it, again, what does humano modo mean? And uh, at first they were saying, well, obviously, if someone is using uh, some kind of mechanical device, uh, whether it's a condom or it's an IUD or something like that, um, then that would, on the face of it, that, that certainly was uh, a couple not having uh, sexual intercourse humano modo. But then the question of, of even um, you know, me medical means, you know, uh, using some kind of, 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 of chemical, you know, more and more that, that, uh, that came into consideration. And now um, most canonists would say what you just said, George, you know, that the, um, uh, if a couple has never, ever had normal sexual intercourse, if they have always used artificial birth control in some manner every single time that they had uh, sexual uh, intercourse with no exceptions, then they have never consummated the marriage. And that, that's, that's the, uh, the way the jurisprudence of the Roman Rota has been going the past several years. Okay. But it would have to be just that. You know, and you know what happens more often than not, a couple will say, well, you know, we don't really want to have kids now and they'll use artificial birth control, but they're not all that committed to not having kids. So once in a while, they'll, they'll actually have uh, sexual intercourse in a normal way. You know, so it has to be really, no, the, the decision has to, has to be, we're not going to have kids, that's it. And, and we're, we're going to just make sure that doesn't happen, you know. So they, they always have sexual uh, intercourse, known humano modo, the non-human way. Okay. So, um, Father Elder, can I have one more question? Um, so if it's a sacramental marriage consummated, and let's just say for all intents and purposes that the, uh, you know, the spouse, the, the woman is being, you know, horribly abused. Yeah, yeah. That's not something that can be dissolved or, you know, taken care of by, you know, the Vatican or whoever to dissolve that uh, type of marriage? Not dissolved. We're going to see it in, in a little while, uh, just that scenario and um, how the church can, can permit a separation. But in a case like that, uh, what you would do passionately is say, get the hell out of there. Don't stay one more second with that guy. Right. <laughs> you know, um, obviously, you know, um, uh, and then um, and then canonically, perhaps something can happen because there are many grounds. And we're going to get into uh, whatever time we have left. We're going to get into the, some of the processes at the tribunal. And um, and certainly if 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 uh, if a guy is abusing his wife, uh, there are all sorts of grounds uh, that could possibly be used to, to show that this marriage is not valid. That this guy might be uh, 1095 is just one example. Uh, this this guy is too nuts to be able to live in a normal marriage. Right. Okay. Uh, something like that. Uh, are there other possibilities as well? You know. So we're going to see that when we get into tribunal processes. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. So, all right. So that's uh, that's Ken 1142 non consumato. Now, in 11:43, we refer to Saint Paul. How many of you have um, have never heard of the Pauline privilege? You have all heard of it. 
One person has not heard. Everyone else knows what it is. Okay, so two of you have not heard the Quad Approach. Everyone else knows. Three of you. Okay. No one has. I just wanted to show of hands. Okay. So no one has. Um, you may have heard the term, or you may not. Has anyone actually? Let's put it this way. Raise your hand if you've heard the term before, Pauline privilege. One. Never heard it before. Oh, okay. Two. You heard it? No. Okay. Um, the Pauline privilege. Uh, what does this come from? Let's uh, do a little historical uh, background. Um, St. Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 15. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 15. Um, and our, our book explains it very succinctly, our, our, the Green Commentary on page 1365. Um, on the, the second column there, while addressing a series of pastoral problems raised by the church in Corinth, Paul dealt with the situation of believers married to unbelievers. That's the situation. Believers married to unbelievers. So uh, you have two unbaptized persons, and one of them hears about the Lord Jesus Christ and accepts the Lord Jesus Christ and gets baptized. And the other, the other spouse is furious at this new Christian and just makes life hell, hell for the, the newly baptized and maybe even uh, takes off. Okay, That's the scenario that Paul is talking about. So... Um, Paul offered his own recommendation. And here's the quote from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she is willing to go on living with him, he should not divorce her. Okay? So, uh, so you have a baptized, uh, a newly baptized and an unbaptized, they should stay together. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he's willing to go on living with her. She should not divorce her husband. Then he goes on to say, if the unbeliever separates, however, let him separate. The brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to peace. I remember Senior Bob Kennedy who um, taught here before he went. Uh, he became chairman of the Canada Law Department down at Catholic University when I got down there. And I remember he made a big deal out of this thing about how God has called you to peace. And that's kind of the operative word here. God has called you to peace. So, um, so the the Pauline privilege. Now, of course, we we had to kind of formulate this and put it into canonical terms. But the the basic situation for Pauline privilege is two unbaptized persons, two unbaptized persons. Nobody's baptized. Okay, two unbaptized persons. One of them becomes a Christian of any stripe, not just Catholic, of any stripe. Usually we're dealing with Catholics, but it could be of any stripe, right? One of them uh, converts to Christianity and gets baptized, and gets baptized. Okay. The unbeliever, the other, the other spouse, is not happy about this and makes life difficult for the new Christian. And refuses to live in peace with a new Christian, you know, maybe making fun of the religion or whatever it is, you know. Might even leave, might even just leave the marriage for that reason. It has to be for that reason. Um, if that happens and the um, 
the unbaptized party refuses to live in peace with the baptized party. Then St. Paul says, let him depart. Get the hell out of here. You're called to peace. Sorry, I'm swearing a lot today. I don't know why. Sorry. Okay. This is the grand finale. All good. You're called. You're called to peace. You're called to peace. Okay. That's the scenario. So for Pauline privilege, and I've done a good number of these actually. It comes up with some frequency. But you have to have all those elements. Two unbaptized persons. You can't have somebody who's baptized, even if he's baptized and non-Catholic. But two unbaptized, non-sacramental, right? And 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 both are unbaptized. Conversion, baptism, in any denomination, and then then departure. The other the other party refuses to live in peace with the new Christian. Then you might be able to do a Pauline privilege. Now you don't do it yourself, of course. But when you hear about that scenario. Uh, you might mention it to the couple, don't promise anything, get, stay vague about these things. You can't uh, never make any promises about what somebody else is going to do in life, certainly in the church, right? But then, um, you can send this case to, to, to the tribunal and they'll figure it out. Um, and you'll, uh, you'll, you're, you're going to discover when, when a couple has uh, broken up and somebody wants, um, to, to get this matter uh, somehow settled in the church, um, you basically send these things to the tribunal and you let them figure it out. Okay. That's why they, uh, they pay them the big bucks, not, <laughs> but, uh, but that's what they're there for. Okay. So let's not worry about this, you know, but just for your information. So, you know, you should know what a Pauline privilege is because it does come up once in a while. Um, so what happens, I'll just go through this very briefly with you. Um, so, um, again, 1143, number one, a marriage entered into by two non-baptized persons is dissolved by means of the Pauline privilege in favor of the faith. We hear this a lot in favorum fidei, in favor of the faith of the party who has received baptism by the very fact that a new marriage is contracted by the same party, provided that the non-baptized party departs. So the marriage can be dissolved and the, and the, um, the new Christian can marry someone else, right? Uh, number two, the non-baptized party is considered to depart if he or she does not wish to cohabit with the baptized party or to cohabit peacefully without affront to the creator. Unless the baptized party after baptism was received has given the other a just cause for departing. So um, you could have the scenario, two unbaptized persons, one of them converts and becomes, uh, is baptized, the Catholics say, uh, and then they're fighting like cats and dogs. And the other party says, I've had it, you know, I'm out of here. But it's not because of the baptism or anything like that. It's because that, that uh, say, she is the convert in this case, you know. Uh, she's just been making life really difficult for him. They have a lot of other problems. So he parts for other reasons. That would not be adequate for a Pauline privilege. Now, sometimes these things overlap. So the couple has a lot of problems already. And the baptism might be the last straw, say. And the... Uh, Unbaptized person says, that's it, I'm out of here. You know? um, so when you have a scenario like this, get all the facts, send it to the tribunal, and let them let them figure it out. Okay? Um, just so you know what goes on, they then have to, uh, they have something called the interpolations, Canon 1145. Uh, the unbaptized party, and you should know this uh, when you're dealing with this in a pastoral situation, the unbaptized party has to be contacted. So for the baptized party to contract a new marriage validly, 
the non-baptized party must always be interrogated, okay, whether he or she also wishes to receive baptism. And number two, he or she at least wishes to cohabit peacefully with the baptized party without affront to the creator. Okay, so um, uh, the, the, you can't just take the, the, the newly baptized person's word for it. You have to ask the other party as well. Don't you do this. You know, let the tribunal take care of this. You know, you, they might ask you to help, but let them uh, take care of this because you have probably have a very angry uh, other party, right? Number two, this inter interrogation must be done after baptism. For a grave cause or the local ordinary can permit the interrogation to be done before baptism or can even dispense with interrogation either before or after baptism, provided that it is evident, at least by summary and extrajudicial process, it cannot be done or with the use of. So we don't have to go get into this in detail. But normally, the other party has to be interrogated about those two questions. Sometimes it'll be futile. And, and, and the ordinary might just dispense from it. That sometimes happens. We try not to have that happen because, uh, you know, we want to make sure that this is on the up and up and we're actually applying the a true pull and privilege in this case, right? Um, and then we won't get into um, Canon 1145. There are different ways in which the interrogation can be made, right? Um, uh, and um, it can be done um, e even by even by the converted party, you know, believe it or not. You know, so um, they, they they give every opportunity possible to uh, to get the input of the of the unbaptized party. But don't worry about the, the details of this. That's up to the tribunal to worry about. Can eleven forty six? So you'll need to know. Um, the baptized party has the right to contract a new marriage with a Catholic party. That's why they sought the. Uh, Pauline privilege in the first place. They have a right to contract a new marriage with a Catholic party. Number one, if the other party responded negatively to the interrogation or if the interrogation has been admitted legitimately, um, if the non-baptized party already interrogated or not at first persevered in peaceful cohabitation but then departed without a just cause. So don't worry about these in particular. Just realize that the end result of the Pauline privilege is the baptized party has the right to contract a new marriage with a Catholic party. Okay? That's the reason for it. Okay? Um, it can even happen that you can have a mixed uh, marriage or even a, a marriage with disparity of cult with a dispensation, believe it or not. So can 1147, for a grave cause, however, the local ordinary can allow a baptized party who uses the Pauline privilege to contract marriage with a non-Catholic party, whether baptized or not baptized. The prescripts of the canons about mixed marriages are also to be observed. So the Catholic party basically, if he or she receives the Pauline privilege, is free to marry, usually a Catholic party, but it can be a non-Catholic party, even an unbaptized non-Catholic party. And you would go through the usual process in preparation for uh, any of those weddings. So you get a dispensation for a disparity of cult or permission if it's for a, a baptized non-Catholic, whatever it might be. I'm just giving this because you don't need to know the details. Just know basically what the, the Pauline privilege is and then um, get as much information as you can and hand it over to the tribunal and they'll, they'll probably ask you to help them out in different ways. Now, uh, 101148, uh, this is very important for you to know situations of polygamy. Now, I'm not going to get into this now, but um, these are historical things where uh, what happens if somebody's been married 
several wives and converts, right? This has happened. And separation due to captivity or persecution, we can skip that for now. Although what's going on, I suppose somebody is in Afghanistan, you know, and still stuck there, you know, and married to somebody back home. So this can happen. But we're not going to get into this in detail, just so you know that there's a possibility of a separation because of captivity or because of persecution. And the person can contract another marriage, you know. But if that comes up, you know, call the chancery. Okay, don't apply this just by yourself, 
we won't get into the weeds with this, but there can be tacit condonation, not condemnation, but condonation. If the innocent party just resumes marital relations anyway, even though she knows about it. Now, number three, the process, if the innocent spouse has severed conjugal living voluntarily, the spouse is to introduce a cause for separation within six months to the competent ecclesiastical authority, which after having investigated all the circumstances is to consider carefully whether the innocent spouse can be moved to forgive the fault and not to prolong the separation permanently. So basically what happens is canon law says if adultery has happened, the aggrieved party is urged, if possible, to forgive the party committed adultery and to resume living together. But if not, he or she can seek a canonical separation. And then the bishop himself has to make sure that this is the only alternative, that he has to try to convince the innocent spouse to forgive the fault and not to prolong the separation permanently. That's a big worry. However, canon 1153, if either of the spouses causes grave mental or physical danger to the other spouse or to the offspring or otherwise renders common life too difficult, that spouse gives the other a legitimate cause for leaving, either by decree of the local ordinary or even on his or her own authority if there is danger and delay. So if some poor woman comes to you or calls you and says, my husband is beating me, he's not Catholic, can I leave? Tell her, yes, leave immediately. I'll send the police. I'll come and get you myself. I'll be careful. But yeah, leave. Tell her to leave. Canon law itself says leave if there's danger. But number two, in all cases when the cause for the separation ceases, conjugal living must be restored unless ecclesiastical authority is established otherwise. Well, in a case where there's physical violence, you have to be very careful about this kind of thing. So there can be a canonical separation. As I said, this rarely happens in the United States. It may in the future. Who knows? Because more and more, I'm discovering more and more devout Catholics who have been married for like 30 years are separated. And now they want so-called annulments and things. There's no grounds. So I'm wondering if this is going to come into play in the future. My mother had a very dear friend who just died actually, but 60 years ago. I'm assuming it's a formal separation that was granted. Her husband was a wonderful man, but he couldn't beat the alcohol. Oh, yeah. Raising five kids. It sounds like this would be the section. Yeah. And it might have been done canonically or might have just been a legal separation of some kind. Well, I shouldn't assume. But something like that where he's, you know, wrecking the home. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what this is about. All right. So, okay. Obviously, Ken 114054, after the separation, the adequate support and education of the children must always be suitably provided and so forth. The Ken 1155, the innocent spouse bluntly can readmit the other spouse to conjugal life. In this case, the innocent spouse renounces the right to separate. All right. Now, the very last part of the code, but not the last part of the course, 
Um, is the last part of the course will be, uh, you know, you'll see. Um, the, um, the last part of the, of the, uh, the section of the code is the convalidation of marriage. And, um, and convalidation means basically some, uh, a couple was married in some way, shape, or form beforehand, but, if, but it wasn't valid, right? It wasn't valid. So uh, convalidation makes it valid. And there are a couple of different ways of doing convalidation. So, um, and this happens frequently. You'll be doing probably a lot of these. You know, uh, you think about people that we all know, young people who, you know, I don't go to church anymore, blah, 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 you know, and uh, uh, so they take off, they, uh, they get married, say they're Catholic, you know, or at least one of those Catholic, they marry in a Buddhist temple or something, and not, not that there's anything wrong with Buddhists, but you know what I mean. Um, they get married, however, not the least bit interested in practicing their faith, never go to mass, then lo and behold, the first child appears. Yeah. Oh, and they start thinking about the future. So then they start thinking about baptism, and they come to you, and one of the questions you have to ask them is, were you married in the church? No. Oh, let's discuss that. And you offer them the possibility of convalidating the marriage. And, and that happens. Okay, remember the, the uh, Supreme Alex, Salvation of Souls? Well, that happens. Okay, so... Um, that this is an opportunity for you uh, to bring them back into the good graces of the church, and then you can tell them, look, you can go to the sacraments again, you know, all these great things and so forth. Um, so that's that's a, an important pastoral opportunity is when, uh, when a couple who's invalidly married comes to you with their first child. It's your golden opportunity. Um, so... Um, <clears throat> Our, our green commentary succinctly um, uh, explains this on uh, page 1378, the end of the second column, the second paragraph, where it says, Convalidation is the canonical procedure for making valid a marriage that was invalid from its origin because of a defective consent, a German impediment, or defective required form. The law contains two methods for convalidating an invalid marriage, simple convalidation and radical sanation. The former requires a renewal of consent by the parties. The latter is an intervention of church authority that gives naturally sufficient and still perduring consent retroactive validity. So what does this mean? Um, the simplest form uh, you'll deal with all the time. A couple was married outside the church. They want to get married in, in the church. Basically what you do is since the marriage was invalid, canonically, there's really no difference between uh, this couple and any other couple who will come to see you that isn't married. They're not married. They might have been living together for 30 years, but they're not married. Okay, it's invalid. Okay, it's invalid. So two Catholics ran off to get married in front of the justice of the peace. You know, um, you know, I told you about my own sister. You know, um, a baptized Catholic runs off with her, um, uh, her, her. Um, I guess you, yeah, he was his fian, her fiance at that point, and they got married with a, they got a fly-by-night Protestant minister and a birth sanctuary in, in Nantucket, you know, invalid, you know, which drove my mother crazy, you know, I told her the story, and finally got it convalidated, right, um, but um, it happens, it happens all the time, and <clears throat> when you have the opportunity to convalidate, you simply prepare them for marriage as you would any other marriage. And we're going to go, uh, before we leave today, we're, going to, we're just going to go through the highlights of preparing for somebody for marriage. And then um, 
and then the annulment process. So you at least have a schematic of all of this. So, but you would prepare them for marriage as you would anybody else, as we say, mutatis mutandis. You know, obviously, if they've been living together, they have several kids. You don't have to send them to pre-canon where they'll tell them all about, you know, practicalities of budgeting and stuff like that. You know, you don't have to worry about that. But you certainly have to prepare them for entering a true marriage. And they have to understand that they will be required to give a new consent. And this makes it kind of delicate because this happens all the time, probably in your own families. I know in my family, a couple lives together. They're married outside the church, but they love each other. They've committed themselves to marriage in every other sense. They're raising kids. They love each other deeply in the whole nine yards. It's kind of hard to explain to them, well, you have to give new consent because your former consent is invalid. So you have to be careful how you word it. You don't want to say, though, we're just going to do a church blessing on your marriage because it's more than that. The marriage is invalid. So this, gentlemen, is where your pastoral skills come into play. Canon law doesn't tell you how to do this, but you have to figure out a way to be open and welcoming and show them how much you care about them. And at the same time, to make it clear that they're now going to enter a valid marriage for the first time. And obviously, that doesn't mean that there wasn't love and all the rest in that previous union, but it was invalid. So that's what a convalidation involves. And when a couple comes to you to have the marriage convalidated, then you prepare for it, as I said, as you would for any other wedding. Skipping the parts that aren't really necessary, like probably pre-Canon and things like that. So there are various reasons why a marriage would have been invalid. So Canon 1156 explains this a little bit. To convalidate a marriage which is invalid because of the dearment impediment, it is required that the impediment ceases or is dispensed and that at least the party conscious of the impediment renews consent. Ecclesiastical law requires this renewal for the validity of the convalidation, even if each party gave consent at the beginning and did not revoke it afterwards. That's the problem. So a simple case where a couple, a Catholic, this happens all the time in our area, Catholic Jewish couple, and the Jewish party and the Jewish party's family doesn't want anything to do with a Catholic ceremony at all. And they just can't be bothered. And they don't even get married finally in a Jewish ceremony. They just get married, whatever. Or they get married in a Jewish ceremony, but they just kind of thumb their nose at the church and don't ask for any dispensations or anything. So marriage is invalid. Why is it invalid? Why would it be invalid for a Catholic to marry a Jewish person without any intervention by the church? Disparity of cult. Disparity of cult number one, and what's the other one? Lack of form. Lack of form. Disparity of cult is the same as disparity of worship, but lack of form. They got married in a non-Catholic ceremony without a dispensation. So it's invalid on two counts. So if they have the marriage convalidated, you would need to get a dispensation 
from disparity of color, what they should have done in the beginning. And then you can do the wedding. So it's as simple as that. Okay. Um, there, uh, it gets more complicated depending on the nature of the, of the impediment that was there at the beginning. Or it might have been simply that there was no impediment. They just ran off and got married in a non-Catholic ceremony, uh, which is invalid for lack of form, but that's easily taken care of. All right, so that's that's a, a simple convalidation, but they have to renew consent, right? Um, if the impediment is uh, Ken, uh, Ken 1157, the renewal of consent <coughs> must be a new act of the will concerning a marriage which the renewing party knows or thinks was null from the beginning. Um, it's, it's just that, right? Um, that, that it must be a, a new act of the will. Um, and, and somehow that has to get across them. It's not just, they're not just receiving a blessing from the church, but it's a new act of the will, uh, giving consent anew. Okay. Um, okay. If it's a public impediment, it must be renewed uh, in canonical form, 1158. Um, 1158 number two, um, this happens call the chancery or call the tribunal. If the impediment cannot be proven, it is sufficient that the party conscious of the impediment renews the consent privately and in secret, provided that the other person hears the consent offered. If the impediment is known to both parties, both would renew the consent, right? So it has to be, uh, in any case, it has to be the, the party that is aware of the impediment um, that, um, that renews consent, okay? um, however, however you do it. But, um, uh, and if you get it into a situation like that, as I said, call the chancellor, call the tribunal, because normally it's going to be both parties aware, are aware that there was a problem. They want to get married in the church so you can take care of that. Um, Can 1159, uh, I don't want to get too much into the weeds with this. Uh, if you're confused about these things, again, that's why, uh, why tribunals and chancellors are there. Can 1159, a marriage which is invalid because of defective consent is convalidated if the party who did not consent now consents, provided the consent given by the other party perseveres. Um, um, and if defective consent cannot be proven, it is sufficient if the party who did not consent gives consent privately and in secret. Um, if the defective consent can be proven, the consent must be given in canonical form. So again, if that kind of a situation comes up, uh, you know, call the transfer to the tribunal. But normally it's going to be sim a simple uh, marriage ceremony that, that, that you'll be doing. Um, again, 1160 is the simplest of all. Uh, a marriage which is null because of a defective form must be contracted anew in canonical form. In order to become valid, don't worry about Ken 1127. So, um, so de defect, defective form, right? Um, we're talking about canonical form, basically. Um, but um, sometimes defective form means, as our um, as as our commentary points out, um, it, it means the um, absence of some essential element. It could include the faculty to witness the marriage on the part of the church's official witness. So if you if you think about it, that's what uh, that would uh, defective form would include that because uh, the form requires the presence of <coughs> a, a bishop, priest, or deacon who has the faculty to to do the wedding. Right? And if the person uh, doesn't have the faculty, 
then it's invalid. And that has happened. Um, I might have told you this. I, I don't think I did, though. Uh, I had a, um, I have a, uh, two dear friends who uh, got married uh, several years ago. I was already a professor here. It was maybe my second year teaching here. Um, they were, had both been married before. Um, and they're both Catholic. She had been married at, you know, age 17 to some Looney Tune guys, guy in, a, in the Grand Ole Opry Hall in Tennessee or something like that. That was totally invalid, right? So, <laughs> lack of form, clearly, you know? But he told me that he'd been married for like, I think it was about 25 years. He had two daughters and he'd been married by a Catholic priest. By they. So what do we do, you know? So I sent him to the tribunal. I kept asking him, this was a, a, a priest? It was a Catholic servant? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, oh, all right. Somewhere down the line, it became clear that he had been married by a Catholic priest, but like in a hotel somewhere. I began to get suspicious, you know? And I asked him, wait a minute. Are you sure this guy's a Catholic priest? Oh, yeah, absolutely sure. You know, the... The hotel or whatever the agency was that was doing the wedding said, no, they guarantee this is a, this is a real Catholic priest. Uh-huh. And he got married in this, it was a hotel or some kind of a, you know, it was a non-sacred space, right? Um, and I think it, was, it happened in New York, and you couldn't do that in New York, you know? So I did some digging, and I found out this priest was, um, and he was either an ex-priest or he was a priest who didn't have faculties. And that was the point. He didn't have faculties to do weddings. He, uh, and he was going around uh, ju just making a living doing this kind of a thing. You know, every once in a while, um, your pastor and maybe you yourself, I don't know who's on the mailing list, will get um, uh, a, ma a mailing. There's this big mailing you get from the chancery office, at least in the archdiocese. And they used to include, I don't know if they still do, um, alleged perps or alleged perpetrators. And they'll describe people who are going around, you know, doing things, you know, this, uh, uh, sometimes there's a, there's a phony salesman who's trying to sell clerical goods to, to rectories or something. But every once in a while, there's, there's an ex priest who's going around who doesn't have faculties, who's going around doing weddings and things. And some of these hotels and whatnot make use of them. So, and, and anyway, so my friend had long ago broken up with his, uh, his former wife, you know, so I said, well, I've got, I've got good news for you. <laughs> you know, you know, your, your marriage, it looks like your marriage was invalid for lack of form, you know, and that was a pretty easy uh, case to prove, you know, um, and they found out when they did the digging, sure enough, there was no record in the um, baptismal, um, uh, the baptismal register and, you know, cause obviously this guy wouldn't have registered the wedding and so forth. So, uh, so that was a lack of form because even though it was, it looked like a Catholic ceremony. It was a Catholic priest. He didn't have faculties, right? That's so. That's why it's so important to have faculties because if you do a wedding and you don't have the faculty faculties to do the wedding, that wedding could be declared invalid, right? Because in this case, then you would be deacon stupid, you know, uh, because you didn't you didn't get your uh, your faculties from the, from the pastor or the appropriate vicar. Okay? Um, so, and of course, and, but the garden variety lack of form is the Catholic went off to, to City Hall or to some non-Catholic venue and, um, and didn't get any kind of a dispensation, okay? Then you can, then uh, that's the simplest kind of, of uh, um, convalidation, 
And again, Canon 1160, marriage which is null because of defective form must be contracted anew in canonical form in order to become valid. So finally, last but not least, we come to the second form of convalidation. And there was a father, Joe Henschey, who was teaching here when I first arrived. He was already, I think he was over 80, and he was a great, great guy. He was close to Cardinal Dolan when Cardinal Dolan had been in Rome, and he was teaching theology, I believe. And he had a great sense of humor. So when he first met me, he said, what are you teaching? I said, Canon law. He said, Canon law, healing at the root. And he got a great kick out of that. That's what this is, the radical sedation. It's called in Latin, see? Go again. Don't tell me. Why make it simple? It's exercising feet. I need the steps. I need to keep my doctor's orders. That's right, doctor's orders. Let's try this. Sinatia, here we go. Can you guys see this? All right, can you see it? Okay. Sinatia, how far can I go? All right. In, let's see it again. Roddy Che. Sinatia and Roddy Che. Roddy Che, think of a radish root, right? Healing, sedation, right? Same, you know, Sinatia in radish, Roddy Che, healing at the root. Radical sedation. Pardon? Radical sedation. Radical sedation, right? Healing at the root, radical, yeah, radical, radical at the root, right? Radical sedation. And what is it? It's a great invention, I have to say. Um, in 1161, <clears throat> radical sedation of an invalid marriage is its convalidation without the renewal of consent. That's the difference. Okay? There is no renewal of consent, which is granted by competent authority and entails a dispensation from an impediment if there is one, and from canonical form if it was not observed, and the retroactivity of canonical effects. Um, Convalidation occurs at the moment of the granting of the favor. Retroactivity, however, is understood to extend to the moment of the celebration of the marriage unless other provisions expressly made. A radical sedation is not to be granted unless it is probable that the parties wish to persevere in conjugal life. So what all this comes down to is uh, a couple got married and there's something wrong. Uh, the simplest case again, uh, and I, I bring up my own sister, you know, the, uh, she married a Jewish guy, lack of form and disparity of cult, right? But they gave consent. This is the difference, right? They gave consent and the consent, uh, perdured, right? It, it continued until the, the day my sister died, right? Um, so consent, uh, consent continues. And in a, in a case like that, uh, normally you want to do a simple convalidation. You want to have like a, at least a, a small ceremony for the occasion. But in a case like a case like that, if one of the parties just doesn't want to do this, 
you know. Um, the Catholic Party, or they make it both Catholic parties, for all you know, um, the one party that wants to do it can do it even in secret. Um, as long as it's clear that the consent of both of them continues. So it'd be a matter of, of, of giving a petition uh, to the, the Chancery Office and so forth, and they would, they would grant a sanation, which means basically they're, they're dispensing retroactively from whatever it had to be dispensed. So form, disparity of cult, whatever it is, right? So they dispense retroactively. But the key is that consent has perdured this whole time. That's the key. Sometimes it happens, father stupid or deacon stupid, forgot something. <laughs> you do the you do the wedding, you forgot something. It's <laughs> a good trick. Yeah, no, it's a great it's a great trick. Yeah, can lawyers have also it's a great trick. So you forgot to do so, uh, a couple comes to you, they need dispensation for disparity of cult. Whoops, you forgot to get it. And you have this big, beautiful wedding in the whole nine yards, and they're on their way, they're off to Hawaii for their honeymoon, and blah, blah, blah. Here you are. Oh, my God, what do I do? Well, canon law to the rescue. You um, you get in touch with the chancery office, you tell them what happened, and they'll tell you, yeah, Father, it happens all the time. And they'll and they'll grant you a sanation of the, of the marriage. So um, uh, a radical sanation. Uh, and the couple need never know about this. They need never know about this. You know, it's a technicality that, that why, why would they need to know about it? So, um, and that happens every once in a while. So sometimes the radical sanation can be done with only one party knowing and the other not. Um, or um, it can be done without either party knowing it, whatever. Okay. When I was uh, down in Lake Charles, Louisiana, um, I dealt with a number of cases of uh, Catholics who had married Baptists, and the Baptists were really, really, really anti-Catholic. I mean, Southern Baptists, you know, oh boy, you know. Uh, you know, I was looking around for the White Hoods and the whole bit, not quite. I was in, I was in Southwest Louisiana, which is, you know, heavily Catholic actually. So, um, but anyway, uh, I dealt with um, a, a few um, Catholic Baptist weddings. Baptists would have absolutely nothing to do with the Catholic Church because, of course, it's the Antichrist of Babylon and all, all that. So, but the Catholic wanted to go to communion and everything, so we would do radical sanations. I had done one once up here, and all the time I'd been uh, on the tribunal. I did, uh, I think, three down there in the short time I was down there because that, that's a way of dealing with a situation like that without the non-Catholic party having to get involved and all upset. You know, it's clear that they, their consent remains, but you don't want to, you don't want to get people all upset if they don't uh, have to be. Because remember, St. Paul says we're called to live in peace. So in case like that, secretly, the non-Catholic party can um, can get the the convalidation, uh, get the radical submission, okay? and no one no one else has to be the wiser. Isn't that isn't that a clever trick? Church has. So, um, so that that's uh, that's radical sedation. I don't think we have to get into the actual canons here. Um, um, it's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, unless anybody wants to, but I think um, I, I've, I've really given you the gist of it. Okay. So again, if this comes up, uh, it comes up rarely. I know in the archdiocese, and I, I'll guess in the other dioceses as well. So I wouldn't worry about it. Too much. It does come up. I'll call the Chancery Office, you know, and see what they say about it.
Okay, any other questions on this section? Okay, let's take a break and then we'll go over um, a basic outline of what to do uh, to prepare a couple for marriage and a basic outline of what happens in the tribunal. Father, I do have one one question. It's yeah. a statement, and I just ask you to validate it. And we can deal with it after the break if you want, but just to think, I don't want to forget to ask it. I'm getting the sense that in listening to all of this stuff, yeah. that it's pretty common for the need to have an annulment if anyone in any situation under any circumstances was married, whether validly or invalidly before. Is that correct to be married in the church? So if, 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 if for example, someone, uh, someone was, two people were involved in a civil wedding and had been married for years. One got divorced uh, and wanted to then marry a Catholic baptized uh, person. Would you still need to do an, a, an annulment in that situation? It, it depends on, on the person. If you're talking about a Catholic, in that, in that first civil wedding, if one of the parties was Catholic, then that's invalid for lack of form. And that's easy, all right? That's a, uh, that's, a, uh, that's a declaration of validity for lack of form that if you have all your um, documents in order, that can be done by return mail, right? If it was two non-Catholics, it's very important, I'm glad you asked the question. If it's two non-Catholics, remember this, uh, Non-Catholics are not bound to the form of marriage. So if two non-Catholics who were not married before and had no other impediments, but if two non-Catholics marry in um, uh, City Hall or wherever, that marriage is valid. Okay, is valid, right? I think I told you in your, uh, a while ago uh, a couple of horror stories about what happened when uh, Father Stupid, in this case it was Father Stupid, it wasn't Deacon's, it was Father Stupid, uh, said to somebody who, as George said, had been uh, a non-Catholic, had been married before to an, another non-Catholic, and Father Stupid said, oh, that doesn't count because, uh, you know, you weren't married in the Catholic Church, so it doesn't matter. And now he went ahead and prepared uh, this guy to marry a Catholic in the Catholic Church. You know, and it was discovered by the pastor at the last moment, and oh my God, you know, because no, that guy was validly married before. So in that case, to answer your question, he, the non-Catholic, who was married to another non-Catholic, would have to go through the full uh, marriage nullity process, so-called annulment, you know. Otherwise, if it was a Catholic who married uh, with lack of form, then it's just a declaration of nullity for lack of form, which could be done pretty simply, usually, okay, it's, again, by return mail. But just generally, and let's, let's take a break, but just generally, I'll get into this. When you're preparing a couple for marriage, if of any type of uh, configuration, one, one or both of the parties before had been involved with someone else in some kind of a union, living with somebody or maybe married you know, outside the church, whatever it is, something, stop everything. You have to stop everything until you're clear that this, is, uh, this was invalid. But we'll, we'll get to this. So let's say uh, 10, 15 minutes, like uh, 25 left, no later than 20 up. Um, I want to go over, <clears throat> how should we do this? Um, what you should do, the basic outline of what you should do when somebody comes to you to get married. Uh, and then um, the other thing I want to do is, is 
briefly review the marriage nullity process at the tribunal. So you know what's happening when somebody is going through a so-called annulment. I guess we'll do the basic outline of what you should be doing. Is that okay with you guys? This is for your benefit. Because again, you're going to be doing this pretty soon, I presume. Sorry? They're coming for you? I'm worried I'll run out of time. Well, we'll just do it quick. All right. So a couple comes to you and wants to get married. What do you do? Get that manila envelope if you have one. What do you do? Let's just go through it. What would you do? You're assigned to a parish. You're ordained a deacon. And a couple comes to you and wants to get married. So they make an appointment and you sit down and meet with them. What do you do? There are no hard, fast rules here. Just some ideas. And you're going to develop your own style, your own way of doing things. Talk about their background. Yeah. You welcome them and congratulations and be as nice and welcome as you can. Remember the supreme elects always, right? Salvation of souls. So that's what you're all about. So you want to be very welcoming and encouraging and so on and so forth. Good. Okay. So then what do you do? Let's get the paperwork out to get it. Yeah. Okay. Before you get to the paperwork, just to extend this a little bit, you want to talk to them. You kind of want them to get to know you, be comfortable with you. You want to get the story. So how did you guys meet and blah, blah, blah. I would just go over. This is what I typically do. I would just ask them to tell me a little bit about themselves and what led to this momentous decision, how they met and all this kind of stuff. And I might even start taking notes at that point because you might end up using some of this in your homily at the wedding. So, you know, just so you get to know them a little bit about their family background, their life story, who they are, you know, how did they meet, what led to this momentous decision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At some point, I started doing this when I was a recently retained priest and I still do it. At some point, I will ask them bluntly, and why do you want to get married in the Catholic Church? You know, because in my first parish and every parish I've been in, frankly, you know, a couple comes in. I don't know who these people are. I've never seen them at mass, you know, so and I was I wouldn't recommend this. But once once or twice, a couple would would tell me, oh, yeah, we grew up in this parish. This is when I was at Sacred Heart in Suffern. And they would say, you know, we grew up in this parish or one of them grew up in this parish. And oh, and you both live in the parish. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. You go to mass. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, every Sunday. Yeah. Oh, really? What's my name? Because they wanted to make an appointment with a priest, you know, so they meet, you know, because I had never seen them and they had never seen me. So and then as a way of I wouldn't do that now, I don't think. But to underscore the fact, come on, who's kidding whom? You know, so but in some way or another, I would ask and you might want to ask in some way, some way or another. Why do you want to get married in the Catholic Church? You know, what is so special with the Catholic Church? 
Yeah. And typically they'll say, well, I grew up in the church, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but you haven't been to Mass for many years, you know, so why do you want to get, you know, you get, get into that and, 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 you know, find out, you know, what's going on. And, and that's the, that's a pastoral opening for you to work with, right? Um, but again, don't necessarily ask that question so bluntly. Why do you want to get married in the Catholic Church? Why don't someone, you know, you know, just you have to develop your own style. But you want to get to know them, get the story, okay? Then, um... You start talking about practicalities. So, uh, when do you think about getting married? You know, um, next week? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> next year? Okay, maybe. You know, let's see. You know, and, uh, and you see, uh, you know, you see if time is available and so forth. Um, uh, you don't, you don't book them until you are able to book them. You know, uh, you don't book them as soon as they walk in. So uh, then, then you um, you go through with them, what's going to happen, all right? There's a period of preparation. And I, um, I, I often say, you know, it took me four years after college uh, to, uh, to receive the sacrament that I received, the sacrament of my vocation, the uh, sacrament of holy orders. Uh, this is a sacrament of vocation uh, for, for you guys. And it's more difficult because there's another human being involved. You know, for me, it's just me and God. It's a lot simpler. But for you, it's another human being involved. So you need some preparation. And that's why the church you know, uh, asks you to uh, uh, spend some time, you know, thinking about what you're going to do and, and, and talking about it and so on and so forth. So then you bring up uh, pre-cana and all that. Um, what other documents do you have to have besides a pre-cana certificate? A certificate? Baptismal certificate. Correct. Baptismal certificate. And don't forget a recent baptismal certificate, right. not the one that that her mother has in the drawer from when she was born, but a recent baptismal certificate, and you check the notations. Very often, uh, when they send a, a when a parish sends a baptismal certificate to you, they'll simply write on it, no notations. All right. So uh, you want to make sure there was nothing before. If there was, you know, then then when there's something you have you have to deal with. Okay. So you send it to pre-cana, and uh, what would you do after pre-cana? think this is a couple that's going to get married all right you're responsible for them you're responsible for their souls right you're ordained deacon what would you do now they come back from um uh from pre-canon i'm not thinking canonically necessarily that also but what, but what would you do well you want to make sure that they understood what happened in pre-canon make sure that their intention is to have kids and, and that type of thing you know you want to just question them about what happened in pre-canon Exactly. Yeah. Do a follow up to pre-cana, you know, uh, and talk about it. You know, the 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 obvious issues. You know, pre cana is not um, it's an absolution for us not to talk to them about about marriage. You know, um, they do what they can at pre cana but then we have to uh, do what we can. So we follow up. You know, and you could very simply ask them any any questions that came from pre cana any 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 interesting discoveries or whatever. You know. Um, and then, you know, do you ever look at any of the paperwork that they complete in their exercises on the pre I have to tell you, it's been so long since I um, did a, a wedding under those circumstances because I've done it, you know, because you know, even when I was a pastor, we had COVID, so we didn't have, you know, I think I had two, two weddings. So it, it was just different. And, and pre before that didn't involve as much of that kind of paperwork, you know. So, um, so no, I haven't. But if they want to, that's a great thing to do. Anything that came up, 
you know, differences that they have between themselves or whatever. But um, as Jim mentioned, you want to um, make sure they know the basics. Okay? So uh, at some point, you want to talk with them about marriage being uh, permanent, right? Um, being faithful and being open to the possibility of having children, you know? And what do you do, for instance, um, when a couple say, uh, yeah, you talk to a couple about having children and they say, oh yeah, yeah, we want to have children, but not right away. You know, we're going to wait a few years. What do you do then? This happens all the time. What do you say to them? What do you do? Because you're trying to open the door to natural family planning. Yeah, yeah. You talk about natural family planning. What'd you say? Back in a few years. Come back in a few years. Well, that could be the other thing. Because maybe they're not ready for it. Yeah, they might not be ready for it because even if they want to use natural family planning, yeah, you, you would want to say, but what is marriage about? You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you want to get married, but you don't have kids. You might want to have kids later. Okay, uh, natural family planning. So at least uh, it wouldn't be immoral in that sense. But uh, that, that's a question you have to have. There's no, there's no um, uh, immediately obvious answer to that. It depends on, on the couple themselves. You know. Um, uh, yeah, obviously people can uh, should be responsible about uh, you know uh, the spacing of births and so forth. But to put off the whole thing for several years, are you really ready to get married? Is this really marriage you're entering into? What's going on? You know. So um, would that even be a, an intention contra bonum prolis? You know. Um, of course, if they do natural family planning, um, that involves openness to the possibility of conception, right? Um, but for that matter, so does uh, uh, artificial birth control, you know, because that can, you know, sometimes that doesn't work either. You know? so, um, so you have to have those discussions, you know. Um, and also, uh, what else would you discuss with, with them? Say they're, you know, a young couple in their late 20s, early 30s, something like that. They haven't been to church for a long time. What would you discuss with them? Anything to you raise the children in the faith. What about these two children that are sitting right in front of you? They're going to mass. They're going to mass church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless they went to confession. Yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff, right? And you want to talk to them about the faith itself, you know? So, um, and uh, if if they're people of goodwill, uh, all this will lead into a deeper discussion of what marriage itself is, and we hope with a realization that. This is for keeps. This is for life. This is about my own life. And when I'm getting married, ultimately I'm thinking about the end of my life because this is for the rest of my life. So, um, so that it's a great pastoral opportunity because now you're, uh, in a nice way, you're kind of forcing them to face reality, to face what their lives are all about. And as we know, so many people just want to live in the moment. They don't, don't want to think about the future. They don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about anything about, you know, right here and now. And so it's an opportunity to invite them to think about their lives, you know, um, so, and, and then marriage itself. Remember um, the very beginning of the course, the very first canon, canon 1055, you know, and all that that means, you know, uh, and to share that with you uh, about the fact that, that this is a covenant, that God is present to you. This is, this is if, they're, if they're both baptized, this is a, a special sacrament, which means that Christ is present to you in a, in a unique way in this sacrament. And, uh, and, and on and on about that, about this is about the love of God, about the ultimate meaning of life and all of that. You know, so all these things that you, you can be talking about with them. It's so very, very important. Um, uh, 
Pope Benedict, and I think I mentioned this to you already, um, uh, stressed the fact that all of the canonical aspects of preparation for uh, a wedding are pastoral opportunities. Okay? You don't just check off things on that manila envelope, but you use them as opportunities to, um, to help the, the couple draw closer to Christ. Okay? So whatever it might be, you know, baptismal certificate, whatever it is, whatever the discussion is. So um, that's, that's what your role is. Okay, um, and so that, that's constant, right? So what are the things that you need to, uh, to get? So if we mentioned pre-Cana, what else? Baptismal Recent baptismal certificate, usually within six months of, uh, of the date of the wedding. Yeah, what else? License. License, right, I told you about that, right? What I, uh, what I recommend, which is uh, that, that they, uh, they bring the license to the rehearsal and you hang on to it. And then right after the wedding itself, right after the ceremony, when they're, when they're still uh, running around before they, before they run into the limousine or whatever, you get the signatures. Okay. So you got to move quickly right after the uh, right after the the, um, the the wedding ceremony itself because depending on how much time they're going to spend at the church before they get into the cars. So um, I would usually just take off the chasuble and <laughs> and just run back with with pen in hand. Yeah. At some point in this process, do you directly ask or do you just try to find out on your own whether or not they're cohabiting? Oh, that's obvious from the beginning. You're going to get their addresses. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, you're going to get their names and addresses almost immediately. So, okay, what happens when you um, <clears throat> what happens when you find out that they're living together? Pastoral work. Pardon? A lot of pastoral work to do. You have a lot of pastoral work to do. What what, what would you do? Well, you said <clears throat> that they probably should try to live either like brother and sister or be apart for a while. That's basically it, you know, if they're, um, uh, and that's a delicate discussion you have to have with them, you know, because um, if they're living together and they're having sexual uh, uh, intercourse together, well, you know, they're living in a state of sin and they're not ready to get married, you know. Um, so how do you deal with that? And that, again, is a pastoral issue. I'm not give, giving you any clear-cut answer to that. That's, uh, that's a pastoral issue. But uh, as Anthony said, uh, the basic solution is uh, they either uh, separate for however long it is, or they um, they live together as brother and sister. And I have to tell you, I've been very edified hearing confessions uh, sometimes, uh, especially uh, like midtown Manhattan, a lot of young people working offices and so forth. And um, someone will come in and confess to the fact that they're going to get married. They've been trying to live like brother and sister, but they but they slipped up. You know. Well, that's great. I mean, because they're really trying. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, we have to point that out to them. Right? That's a that's a pastoral issue. Yeah, I'm glad that came up. So, okay. Um, where were we? So, um, okay. So you need um, uh, baptismal certificate. You need the pre-cana. You need the wedding license. What else do you need? Mm -hmm. Our certificates. No, you don't need that. Pardon? We don't like the. Statement of freedom, or okay, yeah, you, you will probably need that depending on what your diocese requires. Uh, this has evolved over time, but now the Archdiocese of New York enough requires letters of freedom. I forget how many people that uh, they need to get. Is it three? Do you see it? Pardon? 
Yeah, at the very least, yeah, yeah, at the very least, you have to read what it says because they, they, this evolves. But, but um, we talked about the bans of marriage. Well, most places now, instead of bans of marriage, they have these letters of freedom, so they get people to testify. Usually, the parents, sometimes parents plus other people as well, uh, would f fill out these forms uh, saying basically, yeah, they're good to go. You know, so whatever it, whatever's there, you have to follow the. Um, uh, the, the process that's there for your for your own uh, for your own diocese. Okay, and again, that should be your pastor should be able to show all that to you, or you should be able to find it online or both. Right? Is there is, is there like a checklist for this? I'm because I've never heard of a letter for freedom. Yeah, there's something new. Um, you know, we weren't doing this when I was when I was ordained. You know, this replaces the bands of marriage. Um, you know, checklists are, are worked out somehow. You know. Um, I think I saw a checklist somewhere uh, for the archdiocese, even I think, you know. But um, uh, the well, the archdiocese will will with any diocese will will have its its requirements there. You'll find that in the rectory, you know. You're, again, that's why you need to to talk to your pastor because there's certain things you will need to, to fill out, right? Um, there's something now called the PMI. Yeah. Remember that. Um, so it's the premarital, PMI stands for different, different things, people call it by different things. It used to be called the premarital investigation, the premarital inventory. So each of the parties is interviewed by you separately. You bring them in at the same time, so one doesn't have time to go home and tell the other what's going to happen. So. Uh, you bring them in at the same time. One sits out in the waiting room, the other comes in with you, you put them under oath, and uh, you ask the questions that are there in uh, the PMI form. And um, they're pretty straightforward questions, most of them, but they include direct questions that need to be asked uh, in the absence of the other party, like, are you freely choosing to marry? You know, uh, or do you understand that one of the main purposes of marriage is to have children raise a family? Do you understand? With this understanding, do you intend to enter a true marriage and so forth, right? Uh, so some very basic and very important questions. The PMI itself can be um, a springboard for your discussion uh, about uh, their about their, their upcoming marriage and their life together. Okay? So the PMI. And, of course, when you're talking to them early on, you need to find out if there are any impediments. Don't forget those, right? We spent a lot of time on impediments. So what do you do if you discover an impediment of prior bond? Full stop, okay? Prior bond, that's it, and stop, okay? Uh, if there's any prior union of any kind, you stop and you make sure that this is taken care of. Because it has happened that, that people have been asked, have you been married before? And they have been married before, and they say no because, for, in their mind, being married before means just being married in the Catholic Church. Right? So uh, you, you have to ask them if you, you know live with anybody, whatever. You, you have to get this get this very clear. Okay, any previous marriages? So prior bond. That's divine law. So then you would have to take whatever measures are necessary, whether it's a, a Pauline privilege or it's a, a declaration of nullity for lack of form or whether it is a, a formal marriage case we're going to discuss very briefly in a moment, uh, whatever it might be. Okay? But you have to 
get that resolved. Any other um, impediments of ecclesiastical law, you need to get a dispensation, right? So disparity of cult, right? We mentioned that, right? Um, mixed marriage then. Remember, we, you, uh, that's, that's not an impediment per se. You need permission, not dispensation. You need permission for uh, mixed marriage, Catholic marrying a baptized non-Catholic, right? Um, and any other impediments, right? You have to get those dispensed, but those are the most common ones. Um, you have to find out where they want to get married. Sometimes they want, if they're, it's a Catholic marrying a non-Catholic, they want to get married in a um, non-Catholic ceremony somewhere. It has to be a religious ceremony. Uh, then you need a dispensation from form, right? In addition for, to uh, possibly dispensation for disparity of cult or uh, permission for um, uh, mixed religion, right? Um, okay. And then... Um, for yourself, you have to, uh, the simplest would be they want to get married right in the parish to which you're assigned. Well, you already have faculties, right? If they want you to do the wedding somewhere else, then you have to make sure you have faculties. Remember that, right? And the pastor or the broken vicar has to say, I give you delegation. You have to hear those words. I give you delegation, right? Um, make sure you hear those words. Or the other way around, if if someone if you're just doing the paperwork and someone else is coming in to do the wedding, you know the long lost uncle of the bride or something like that, then you have to say well, not you can, <laughs> the pastor or the broken uh, vicar has to say to the visiting cleric, whatever it is, priest or deacon, you you have delegation, right? so you have to take care of all of that. Okay. All right. Um, so the PMI, and then um, so the wedding itself. Uh, I want to spend some time preparing that with them. Um, they have all sorts of choices of, of, you know, readings and prayers and songs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if they're at a loss, thanks be to God, tell them, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it for you, and I'll pick the best readings. And then you're set, you know, because otherwise, oh, my God. So and then you can pick the readings that you usually, that you're prepared to preach on. So, um, but yeah, all that preparation. Then, as I mentioned in an earlier class, you want to make this a really big special event. You know, um, sometimes, once in a while, I've I've had a couple that just wanted to get it over with. <laughs> you know, you still want to make a very special event. Do what you can, you know, and really work on your homily. And you should. Uh, most guys have a, like a set homily, and they do variations on that for different weddings and so forth. But uh, that's something you need to work on because. Uh, this is one of the biggest moments in their, in, their, in their lives, so it's very, very important. Okay. Um, so afterwards, you get the signature on the license, signatures on the license. Get the license back in a timely fashion within the time required by civil law. Uh, and even before you do that, what do, what, what do you do? You just fin you just finish the, uh, the ceremony. They leave, they walk out, and you go you go up to. To wherever it is and have a drink or what? You got to record it. Okay, make sure you record it. Okay, we went over that. Um, and make sure it's recorded in the proper place. So if they got married in your parish, right in your parish. If they got married in a hall in your parish, um, then it's, it's in the parish of the person who prepared them for the wedding. Remember that? Okay. Um, so you record the wedding. Um, what about? Um, the parishes of baptism, if they're different from your own parish. 
They need to be notified. They need to be notified, right? And they're, they're usually forms right in the rectory that you send to the uh, parishes uh, of, uh, of baptism, okay? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, right? Um, and you have to realize you got to sit down and you got to do this. Um, or if they have somebody who's really, really well trained in, in the, in the uh, rectory, but I'd be very careful about that. Okay. Right. Yeah, Steve. I don't remember if you mentioned it before, Father, but I've seen in the finals, um, in addition to the delegation, the letter of good standing for the cleric. So, like, you have a priest from Notre Dame University, you know, two alumni, and the guy's coming in from Indiana. But he needs to have his superior right a letter of good Yeah, good point. This is something new. Yeah, because of uh, uh, the sex abuse uh, scandal and so forth. We um, typically, if we're going to another diocese, we need letters of good standing. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So that's that's not, that's not in, in canon law, but that's that's required by uh, diocesan policy in most places. Yeah, you need that as well. Right? Uh, and then you record it and so forth. Okay. Um, let me just briefly, in the 23 minutes that we have left, uh, and then I'll give you the, 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 the final. Well, let's just go over the process uh, for marriage nullity, formal uh, marriage nullity process, so called nullity. And remember <clears throat> the basic. Presumption in law that a marriage is valid until proven otherwise. A couple comes, or a couple comes. In this case, some somebody comes to you, an ex member of a couple comes to you and says, Father or Deacon, I want an annulment. And your your response is you presume the marriage is valid. Right? You got married in the Catholic Church? <coughs> well, you know, presume that's valid, but sometimes you can prove it otherwise. So why do you think your marriage is not valid? You can talk with them a little bit about it. Don't you don't give them any decision. You can't do that. You know, um, I can't do that unless I'm working on a tribunal. So uh, you just get some idea of, of what the problem is, um, and and then you direct them to the tribunal. And there there are forms, and you really need to look at these forms before you get ordained, because they're usually pretty long and pretty complicated. Uh, so you need to take a look at these forms beforehand, so you know how to help the couple. Or the the, uh, the party, it's usually one party, who, who is uh, seeking the annulment. The party seeking the annulment who initiates the process is called the petitioner. Right? So you have the petitioner and the respondent. Okay? So the petitioner um, uh, comes to you and, and tells you the basic story. You don't you don't want unless they want to cry, in, you know, in your in your office kind of thing. You don't want them to have to go through the whole long story because they're going to have to do that at the tribunal but you want to be there for them pastorally you want to welcome them help them in any way you can and then you assist them to fill out the forms right um and the the forms basic information of name address blah 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 the uh, where the wedding took place the information about the other party um and then what uh what the problems were before they got married and then what the problems were in the marriage what led to the breakup and so forth and there's typically a, some kind of a checklist. Uh, different tribunals do this in different ways, but there's typically some kind of a checklist uh, that should be familiar to you by now, um, because it's ba they're basically uh, getting at different possible impediments. So they might uh, say something like, "Did either of you have you know, any serious psychological problems or whatever? Did uh, either of you have uh, 
uh, have reservations about having children, you know, um, uh, all sorts of things that are that are based on the the impediments that there in canon law. And um, on the basis of all of that, there would also uh, uh, there's typically a form that is actually a petition. Uh, this is this is really the first part of the annulment process. They, sub they submit. I don't know which works here. They submit a petition. They submit a petition. And you might help them with this to some ex to some extent. Don't play amateur canon lawyer. You know. It's like when um, somebody takes a psychology course for the first time, they're diagnosing everybody around them. You know, well, don't do that you know, with, with canon law. Uh, just use the information you have and help them as best you can. But in a petition, um, they will state, you know, I am, I am seeking, um, I'm asking for a trial on the validity of, of my uh, marriage to so-and-so. Uh, I'm, I'm seeking a declaration of uh, nullity uh, for this marriage based on the grounds of whatever in some way shape or form you'll propose grounds these are not the final grounds right? um, you'll send the petition and the other forms to the uh, tribunal and then then begins a whole process that has been revised uh, unfortunately under Pope Francis it's been made uh, more complicated actually um, all process of back and forth trying to uh, get the grounds settled so uh, the, the petitioner might get some communication from the tribunal saying, well, grounds you proposed might work, but we need more information about this. Or they might say, it doesn't appear these grounds work, but what about these grounds? And they have to go back and forth with both parties uh, until the grounds are set. Right? They, so they set the grounds. So it's a petition, and the grounds are set. Now, sometimes the petition is actually rejected. Um, a, a priest I know very well just um, sent me a copy of a decree of rejection from our own Metropolitan Tribunal here in New York um, for a couple of he was working with, and, uh, and the petitioner, petitioner is devastated, you know. Um, and of course, there are serious reasons for rejecting petition. The basic reason is uh, you're proposing these grounds. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that these grounds would gain it, have any traction whatsoever. You haven't proposed one proof for these grounds. It's just you're saying it. You know? So um, there has to be some kind of a proof, and, and proof would, would be people who can serve as witnesses who can say, for instance, if it's Canon 1095, uh, the person had serious psychological problems before they got married, right? Um, be maybe family members or friends of one of the parties who would say, oh, this guy from a young age, you know, he was, he was always going out and getting drunk and he was, uh, uh, he was always uh, skipping school and he was doing this and the other thing and he was, just, he was just a mess, you know? And then he got married. He wasn't ready to get married and everybody knew it, you know? Um, that would be an example of Canon 1095. So, um, uh, so witnesses, witnesses are people who knew um, one or both of the parties well before they got married, before they got married. Because if, somebody, if a couple is validly married and problems develop later, those problems are not, uh, they can't break up the marriage right? because they've already, they're already married. They're married for better or for worse. But if there are problems there before the marriage that would indicate that um, 
that their consent might, might be defective, that they, they don't know what they're doing, they're not, they're not ready to do this. Uh, there's something um, very uh, seriously wrong at the beginning, at the time they, uh, they exchange vows, then possibly the marriage can be declared invalid. Right? So uh, you would uh, need to Father, go. Yeah. Another one is if, if one of the parties has kids, how does the other one accept them or not accept them? How do they uh, treat them type of thing before the marriage, they get married, and one of them has kids that's bringing into the relationship? Sure, that, that would indicate, I mean, that doesn't make the marriage invalid at all, right? But um, but if there, there are serious problems, say, you know, um, the, the, the other party has problems with these kids, doesn't get along with them, and but that would show this person is really not ready to get married, is maybe not committing to, uh, to, to marriage. Uh, the way we expect. So you look at all these things, you know, um, all, all of these different factors, you know, um, all the problems, basically you're looking for all the problems that were there before uh, the couple got married. That's that's what you're looking for, right? And you, you send all that to the tribunal and let them sort it out. Some things might just drop, uh, jump off the page at you and you might be able to propose particular grounds, you know, uh, which may or may not fly, they might change the grounds. You know? But occasionally, as I said, the petition itself was rejected because there's nothing there. Uh, this petition that I, I'm talking about was rejected because, apparently because the guy proposed no witnesses. Uh, it's just his word. It's about something that he says happened 30 years ago. He doesn't even know where the respondent is. There's nothing except him saying, you know. Well, imagine, those of you who are lawyers, imagine trying that in any trial anywhere. It's just my word. You have to accept my word. Well, no, this is a trial, right? The, 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 uh, the marriage itself is on trial. The, the validity of the marriage is on trial. You need proof. You need witnesses. Father, what if both parties agree on, on, on the grounds? Well, that's that's a first start. They should, they should agree on the grounds. You yeah. still need witnesses? Oh, sure. Yeah, you need witnesses. But if both parties are participating, that's a huge plus because now you have not just the petitioner, but the respondent as well. So it's not just the petitioner's word, but the respondent as well. So that, that, that's a huge help. When the respondent is involved, that's in some ways that's even more important than, than the witnesses. But you need, but you need all of them. petitioner, respondent, and witnesses. Okay? Um, so um, because don't forget, you have to prove the case. Right? They have to prove the case. So, um, again, the case I'm thinking about that I was just dealing with, uh, the guy might really believe what he says is the case, but he has absolutely no proof. It's just his word, and he's not offering one witness. Uh, he, um, he can probably find the respondent, because usually in these days, this day and age, you can find people, but hasn't lifted a finger to find the respondent, you, you know, and he's angry at the tribunal. Well, you have to give me my annulment. No, this is a trial. You've got to prove your case. You know, mar marriage is serious business. You know, um, you can't just go around saying your marriage is invalid. So, um, so we need uh, you need, need witnesses. And, and so, once the grounds are set, so the petition itself might be rejected, or the grounds might be uh, might be changed. But once the um, um, the petition is accepted, you, uh, you receive just that. There's a decree of acceptance. I'm just writing these down so you'll, you will have seen them, right? So, um, yeah. Um, then there's a decree of constitution in 
which the judicial vicar sets up the court. So he appoints the, uh, the judges, uh, the defender of the bond, whom I mentioned before, and the notary. There's a person called a notary who's part of the trial as well. And then the, um, then the parties are called to give their testimony. Um, normally, they're supposed to come in in person. The petitioner and the respondent usually come in on separate days for, for obvious reasons. But, and they each come in typically with their own witnesses, right? Uh, that's, the, that's the ideal way to do it, you know? Things um, have kind of evolved uh, because of COVID and, uh, you know, uh, Zoom and all this kind of stuff. So sometimes uh, you can work it out that you can um, do this electronically, but uh, you have to be very careful because it's a court. It's a court. It's not just, a, it's, not, it's not a class. It's not just a meeting, not a discussion. It's a court. So you have to uh, make sure that the people uh, who, who are, um, are who they say they are, just make sure that somebody's not coaching them off the camera, uh, all that kind of stuff. So they usually come in in person to testify. Um, or, or, you know, sometimes because they can't travel, uh, they're, uh, once in a while they might even delegate a, a priest in a rectory or a deacon in a rectory for that matter to take testimony. Uh, there are all sorts of ways of taking testimony, but normally it's in the um, tribunal itself. And after the, um, after the testimony has been taken um, and all the other proofs have been gathered, very often, uh, if it's Canon 1095, there's a psychological report. Uh, and then when, the, um, when all the, the uh, proofs have been submitted and the testimony has been taken, then uh, they, uh, they're invited, each of the parties is invited to, um, to come in and look at everything that's there. Right, so um, everything the petitioner says can be seen by the respondent and, every, and vice versa, right? Uh, they, they both have a right to see all of this and no one outside of the tribunal has a right to see any of it, okay? That's an important thing to remember that this is all kept confidential, but the parties have the right to see everything. Uh, they can propose more um, uh, testimony. They might, they might uh, one of the parties might take objection to something that one party said and want to have a reply and there might be more that's added, you know, um, additional proofs might be needed, who knows, you know, um, but when this is all finished and all the proofs have been gathered, then there's um, another decree called the decree, so first of all, we have the decree of publication, right, Jesse has seen these things, yeah, and then decree of conclusion, That's when um, all of the testimony has been taken. Uh, that part of the trial is over. Then everything is sent to the defender of the bond, uh, who's required um, uh, to uh, to write up a, a, a lengthy um, evaluation of all of this, right? Um, and he sub he submits his evaluation, uh, and then. Um, then the case goes to the judges. It's usually three judges. Sometimes if it's a small place, it's only one judge, um, but it goes to the judges. And they deliberate, they come to their decision, and their decision is published in what's called the uh, definitive sentence, which is uh, you know, it's several pages long. And it, um, it, it brings together all the facts of the case and it, bring, and it applies the law. It explains how this law applies to this case. And it comes to the conclusion the conclusion is either constat or non-constat. The it is uh, the nullity has been established or not established. So it's either affirmative or negative. Um, and 
after that is communicated to the parties, then both of them have a right to appeal, right? But if no one has taken advantage of the right to appeal, then you will get permission, basically, whichever party it is has to bring their copy of the final decree to you, and you have to check it to make sure there's nothing on there about a vaditum or a monitum, remember that. And if all is good to go, then they are free to marry and you can proceed. You may not, as you recall from what we studied earlier, you may not set a date for a wedding until you know for sure that the person is free to marry. So this process has to be finished before you can set a date for a wedding. I know we've kind of rushed through this, but I want to give you a general idea of how it goes so you won't be confused about this. Just remember, it's a trial. It's a trial. They're not applying for a certificate. It is a trial. The marriage is presumed valid because that's what the Lord said to do, and the petitioner has to prove it otherwise. Otherwise, there is a negative decision. Father, most times in the tribunal, isn't it one side? I mean, they're not opposing each other. Usually both couples, both parties of the couple want to have the annulment, or is it one want to stay in the marriage and one want to leave the marriage? In my experience, the respondent usually doesn't care. Sometimes they do both agree the marriage is invalid. Once in a while, you'll have a respondent who is against the annulment, not because the respondent believes the marriage is valid, because the respondent has gone on to marry someone else and has kids with the other person, but the respondent wants to stick it to the petitioner because the respondent knows the petitioner wants this. So when you're dealing with a hostile respondent on a tribunal, you have to take that into account and not allow the respondent to delay things unnecessarily and so forth. And that can, of course, color what the respondent says. But it's interesting. If it's canon 1095, psychological grounds on the petitioner, so the petitioner is saying about himself, I was a messed up SOP at the time I got married. And the respondent comes in and says, oh, yeah, bad SOP. And he goes on to tell you how terrible the petitioner was. The respondent is proving the case. But it helps if they're both involved. And sometimes they both agree the marriage was invalid, but sometimes they do not. There was two things you said you can't have the marriage if it's on there. Sorry? What did you say? You said there was two things that could be on there where you couldn't schedule the marriage. Monitum or vaditum. Remember that? Monitum or the vaditum. Just check the final decree. Check to see if it means that everything is free and clear. But sometimes there's a monitum or a vaditum imposed on one or both of the parties. And remember what we said about that. Then you've got to slow everything up. If it's vaditum, you are prohibited from doing another wedding. It comes from a Latin word to prohibit. Vaditum means the wedding is prohibited. Monitum is a warning. And then you, as the deacon, have to investigate and maybe even get in touch with the tribunal and find out what the problems were. And then you have to help them deal with whatever the problem was. And then you have to make a decision about the possibility of doing the wedding. But if it's a vaditum, you are prohibited from doing the wedding. You would have to do some digging to find out how that vaditum could possibly be lifted. That's usually included in the definitive sentence. Two things. I mean, I've seen a lot of couples go through this. And one thing is 
they complain about the psychological supposed to be very expensive and very long is that true or well it depends uh, you know i don't know recently because i haven't been uh, paying for these things recently but in the past uh if it's it's this case in, it's the case in any tribunal if if a, if a um if somebody has financial problems you know then they make allowances for that you know and i, I know most tribunals have the policy that no one is prohibited from getting an annulment because of lack of funds you know um yeah the annulment itself i mean the process itself would cost in the archdiocese it would cost oh probably ten thousand dollars something like that maybe more you know because when you think about people have to pay salaries you think about uh just the cost of running an office and all the rest but the um uh, when I was judicial vicar, we, we, we would ask um, for a, a contribution of like, a, it's, I think it was around a, a thousand, went up to about twelve hundred, you know. But if there, if the person had financial problems, then we could waive part of that or even all of it, you know. So the second thing is uh, what I'm hearing from the street is the respondent should be told not to comply or just not say anything. That's the worst possible thing. So that's what it's the respondent needs to respond. That's why the person is called respondent. Okay, you respond. That means you respond. Yeah. If the respondent doesn't respond, uh, that um, that that could just destroy the whole thing because there's no evidence. As in the case I just mentioned, to you, where, where there's no one. You know. Um, but the respondent. Don't forget the tribunal is there to get at the truth because, uh, as I mentioned to you, in the definitive sentence. The, the, the judge is right, you know, they begin, nomine domini, amen, or nomine dei, neither in the name of the Lord, in the name of God, amen, and at the end they say, and, you know, have, having only God before our eyes and having invoked the name of Jesus, we hereby pronounce, declare, blah, 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 that this marriage was whatever, um, invalid from the beginning or whatever, so it's serious business, you know, so, um, yeah. What was the degree of publication? That's when um, the parties and their advocates and no one else uh, is told, okay, we have all the proofs, we have all the uh, testimony, and now you are free to come to the tribunal uh, to, to read it over if you want. Okay. All right. Okay. I don't want to cut it short, but I know it's almost 9.30, and I know you guys are eager to have an exam, so um, I'm going to... Put it up on COVID and real on COVID. <laughs> what do we call it? Hopefully. Oh hopefully, boy. Hopefully in real time. <laughs> I hope this works. Um, it's uh, it's a as I as I told you, it is a, a marriage case, um, and I'm basically asking you to uh, tell me from beginning to end what what you would do. Okay, uh, hang on just a second. Hopefully faculty access. Okay. I don't know how else to do this except wait until now. I was afraid if I did it earlier, we would spend the whole class talking about it. So, um, okay, my courses, um, MA. Let me try in the Zoom section first. Section Zoom. Okay, now share something with the class. I think this is where I do it. No, that's not it. <laughs> File, maybe? No, that's not it. Um, I had this figured out yesterday. Um, 
formatting. No. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, I had this all set to go last night. It was going to take me like a minute to do it. Uh, lessons files. Maybe a file. No. Add files. Ah. Import files. That's not it. Can you just email it to us? Yeah, I'll try to do that. Sorry. Because I don't I think I don't think you can print from Populi. Oh really? I don't think so. Oh really? Well. Yeah, that's a good download. If you're uploading as a file, you can print it, but if you're uploading as a test, it may be something else. No, I'm just doing it as a file. Okay, then you can print it for sure. Okay. Um, when do we have to return it by? Uh, a week from when you get it. So, um, <laughs> MA. I'm sorry. Uh, all right, it's going to take me a while to figure this out. Kind of all set. Oh, so exam. I'm so so exam. So ticked off. Um, I, I'm not even looking at it tonight. Yeah, you're looking at it. All right, I'll send it. I'll send it. I'll go back to him right after this and try to figure it out. Sorry. But anyway, it's in, um. Uh, oh, wait a minute. No, it's something else. <laughs> sorry. Um, it is. It is a marriage uh, case. Uh, that involves what we just discussed. But you need to you need to um, uh, you, you need to give me every step you'll take from beginning to end. Okay, pastoral and canonical. All right. Don't forget all the little details. All right. Um, uh, what you'll say to the couple, every single um, uh, uh, dispensation you need. Um, you know, getting faculties if you need that. Uh, you know, um, what kind of a ceremony where it's recorded the whole bit. Okay, so it'd be, it probably should be more about five pages, maybe seven pages at most. Okay, wow. so you have, um, if you need it, but I, I don't care the length of it as long as you give me the information. You can squeeze it all into two pages. I don't know how you do that, but God bless you. <laughs> so, uh, all right. When did you say with the ceremony? At the ceremony. the ceremony. Pardon? Oh, I didn't hear what you said. Just, just every detail, everything you will do. Oh Whatever you went through. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Ten more detail. Don't make come over with it. No, I'll come over to you and give you a 
Merry Christmas.